How many of you have ever heard of Fiorello LaGuardia? I've never heard of this guy, but he is a legend in New York City. In fact, historians will tell you that Fiorello LaGuardia is one of the best, if not the best, mayors in the history of the United States. You see, Mayor LaGuardia was mayor of New York City during the worst years of the Great Depression and the early years of World War II. And I didn't know anything about this guy, but I was researching in this last week, and I got to find out why he's considered to be one of the very best mayors in the history of this nation. A few quick examples. It was well known that Mayor LaGuardia at times would go on ride-alongs with the fire department. He'd be there on the fire truck going to a fire or some other emergency, and whatever he could do to help when they got there, he would help. He was famous for, at times, taking all the kids in an orphanage to a baseball game. He'd just show up, grab all the kids, and take them to a baseball game. And then one of the most famous things he ever did as mayor to be a blessing to the city is when the New York Times decided to go on strike, he felt bad that the little kids in New York City couldn't read the comics. And so he went on the radio and read the comics for the kids as long as that strike went on. Mayor LaGuardia was a short man, five foot two inches tall. He was nicknamed the Little Flower. But he loved his city, and he loved the people of his city. Well, it was on a cold night in January of 1935 that Mayor LaGuardia showed up at the night court that served the poorest ward in the city. Mayor LaGuardia went up to the judge and said, you go ahead and take the night off. I'll fill in for you. And so the judge went home, and Mayor LaGuardia took the gavel, sat down at the desk in the courtroom, and began to hear the cases. Well, after a few short minutes, there was an old lady that was brought forward. She was the defendant, charged with stealing a loaf of bread from a convenience store. And so he asked her what her defense was, and she explained. She says, well, my daughter's husband abandoned her and my two grandkids. He walked out, left them with nothing, and my daughter's sick. She can't hold a job. She can't provide, and my grandkids were starving, so I stole a loaf of bread. And he turned to the plaintiff, the owner of that store, and the plaintiff said, the woman has to be punished. He said, Your Honor, this is a bad neighborhood, and those that steal need to be taught a lesson. And Judge LaGuardia, Mayor LaGuardia said, Ma'am, the law is clear. I have to punish you. There's no exceptions. I have to fine you $10 or have you in jail for 10 days. And as he was speaking those words, he reached into his pocket and pulled out $10 and put it on his desk. And Mayor LaGuardia said, your debt has been paid. But bailiff, I need you to collect 50 cents from every single person in this courtroom. Because shame on you people for living in a city where a grandmother has to steal a loaf of bread to provide food for her grandkids. And so the bailiff went around and one by one collected the 50 cents from everyone in the courtroom. And the next day, the New York Times reported that Mayor LaGuardia presented $47.50 to the woman who had stolen a loaf of bread. 50 cents of that was collected from the plaintiff who had brought her to court in the first place for stealing food from his convenience store. Fifty cents was collected from the bailiff 
and from each of the police officers in the room and each of those who had been charged with a traffic violation and each of the petty criminals that were on trial that night. Every single one coughed up 50 cents. And when the $47.50 was collected, the newspaper reported that everyone in the courtroom stood to their feet and gave their mayor a standing ovation. A grace like his deserves a standing ovation. And a grace like the grace that Jesus Christ here in John 4 shared with the woman at the well, it deserves a standing ovation as well. Let's do that for him right now. Stand to your feet. Let's thank Jesus Christ for his awesome grace that he showed her, his awesome grace that he's shown me, his awesome grace that he's shown you. We serve an awesome and gracious Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we saw that as Jesus and his disciples were traveling north from Judea to Galilee, Jesus took them straight through the heart of Samaria. Let's get that map on the screen. He took them right through that green area, through the heart of Samaria, on the way to Galilee. We saw last week that the Samaritans were despised by most rabbis, if not all rabbis in Israel, aside from Jesus. And Jesus, as he makes his way through Samaria, he makes his way to Jacob's well there outside the town of Sychar. And Jesus has this one-on-one conversation with a woman who wasn't looking for the Savior of the world. But we discovered that the Savior of the world was looking for her. Last week we saw that Jesus broke down three walls as he spoke to the woman at the well. Number one, he broke down the wall between Jews and And Samaritans, yes, most Jews despised the Samaritans. They would rather cross the Jordan River, if we get that map back up here, they would rather cross the Jordan River twice to avoid Samaria on their way to Galilee than step foot in Samaria. They would rather add two days to their travel journey than step foot on Samaritan soil. That's what they thought of those Samaritans. They despised them. But Jesus, he broke down this wall between Jews and Samarians by reaching out to the woman at the well. Second, Jesus broke down the wall between men and women. As I mentioned last week, for centuries, Jewish men would pray, thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And they would pray this every single day as part of their daily prayers. And I know that prayer is a little bit subtle. If you didn't catch it in the prayer, uh, they didn't like women too much in those days. The Jewish men looked down on women. They'd rather burn the scriptures than teach them to a woman. And Jesus breaks down this wall between men and women, doesn't he? He breaks down this wall. Women can be taught God's word and can understand and live out God's word just as well as any man. And women can hear the good news of Jesus Christ and receive the gospel just as freely as a man can. So Jesus breaks down this wall between men and women. Then we saw that Jesus thirdly broke down the wall between the so-called worthy and the unworthy. And I really like how Chuck Swindoll puts it. He says, The disciples saw Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. To them, she was as low on the social ladder as one can descend. And they simply could not believe it. Let's face it. We care about the salvation of some people more than others. Our Creator, however, doesn't rank people on a scale of worthiness. We are all unworthy of salvation, yet equally loved by him isn't that good but i tell you this one stings a bit this one hurts a little bit the fact is chuck swindoll says most of us 
care about the salvation of some people more than others. That's sadly true, isn't it? There's some people that we really want to pray for to get saved, and other people we refuse to pray for to get saved. Because there are some people we want saved more than others. But our Creator doesn't rank people on a scale of worthiness. We are all unworthy of salvation, yet equally loved by Him. Isn't that good? Keep that in mind. The next time there's someone standing in front of you that you think is unworthy. Keep that in mind the next time there's someone standing in front of you that in your mind they're a lowly person, they're a low life. And you don't think that person is worthy of your precious time. Keep that in mind because when it comes down to it, if Jesus cares for that person, so should you. If Jesus gives her the time of day, then so should you. Well, let's pick up once again in John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 4 this time. Uh, The beginning verse that deals specifically with the woman at the well We're going to start in verse 4, follow along in your Bibles. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, so I want you to see it for yourself right there in your own Bible, beginning in verse 4 of John chapter 4. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, The woman said, I I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, well, I know the Messiah called Christ. He's coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. 
Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or uh, why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months now and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that, he, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just... Because of what you said, now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, by now all of us should have a basic, uh, surfacey understanding of who this woman was at the well. We're told she was a Samaritan. That's a fancy way of saying she was part Jewish. She had a little bit of Jewish blood running through her veins, but not much. She was obviously a woman. She's a five-time divorcee, and she's sexually promiscuous. She's currently living with her boyfriend. It also seems clear that she's a social outcast, rejected by others. Why else would she be at the well in the heat of the day by herself? That's not how they drew water in those days. Women would do it together in the cool of the morning, so it seems pretty clear she was a social outcast. So that's what we know about her on the surface. But God invites us today to dig a little bit deeper. Amen? Let's dig a little deeper and find out some things we didn't touch on last week to understand who she is, how incredible this transformation in her life really was, and once again to see how amazing the grace of Jesus is. In verse 7, Jesus begins the conversation by asking the woman a question. Will you give me a drink? It's a simple enough question, isn't it? Not a complicated question, very simple question, but look at her response. In verse 9, she says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, we're not told what her tone of voice was, right? But if you were to venture a guess, don't you kind of get the impression from verse 9 that this woman was just a little bit snarky? Had a little bit of a chip on her shoulder? This woman had some sass, right? If you had to venture a guess, wouldn't you guess that's kind of her tone of voice? So I think, in essence, if we were to paraphrase what she was saying, if I'm accurate in assessing what her tone of voice must have been, she was basically saying to Jesus something like this, Duh! Let me put this in in, in plain Greek for you to understand. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. And in case you didn't notice, I'm not just a Samaritan. I am a Samaritan woman. Yeah? 
Jews don't talk to Samaritans, and Jewish men certainly don't talk to Samaritan women. Right? Right? Uh Do you get this, brainless? So let me ask you, why on earth are you talking to me and asking me for a drink of water? That's basically what the interpretation is, I believe, of what she was saying. Verse 7. Jesus appeals to the woman's kindness, but she responds defensively and sarcastically. Skip down to verse 10. Jesus appeals to her curiosity by saying, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman's response seems to have more sarcasm. In verses 11 and 12, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this? Living water. Where can you get it? Are you greater than our father Jacob? (laughs) Fat chance. I inserted that myself. Jacob gave us this well. He drank from it himself. I think her sarcasm continues in verse 15. Look at what she says in verse 15. Sir, give me this water so I don't have to get thirsty and keep coming here day after day. You know, She doesn't think he can do it, but she's still being snarky. Between verses 16 and 24, Jesus urges the woman to receive the spiritual truth he's offering. He invites her to step into the grace of God, but each and every time between verses 16 and 24, every time she attempts to deflect the conversation in a different direction. Look in verses 13 and 14. In 13 and 14, Jesus speaks of her spiritual need, but she only focuses on her physical needs, right? In verses 17 and 18, Jesus addresses her past and present sins, but she tries to sidetrack Jesus by calling him a prophet. She's trying to slap on a little butter and change the subject. She doesn't want to talk about her past. She doesn't want to talk about her current sexual sin. Verses 21 to 24, Jesus explains that true worship isn't confined to a certain building in a certain place, but she tries to put off worshiping God until a later date. It seems at first glance spiritual, but it's not spiritual to say, I know the Messiah is coming, and one day he'll explain everything to us. Translation, I'm not going to deal with my sin right now. I don't want to deal with spiritual truth right now. I don't want to deal with how I fall short of the standard God has set for me right now. One of these days, the Messiah will come, and I'll deal with it then. She's pushing it off, isn't she? Yeah, and as you said, it's going to be too late by then if the Messiah wasn't already in front of her. If you look carefully at verses 9 through 25, you'll see that no less than six times the woman at the well tries to deflect the conversation in a different direction than Jesus wants to take it. She comes across as condescending. She comes across as sarcastic. She doesn't want to talk about anything that hits too close to home. Jesus wanted their conversation to go deep, but she wanted it to stay shallow. Have you ever met someone like that? You want to talk to them about Jesus, and they either bite your head off or they change the subject, right? Ever had someone like that? Maybe a family member or friend. If you haven't had someone like that, then you're not telling people about Jesus enough. Because sooner or later, as we tell people about Jesus, as we invite people to church, as we tell them about some spiritual truth we've discovered, sooner or later, someone's going to try to bite your head off as soon as you've tried to tell them something. Sooner or later, there's going to be someone in your family or circle of friends that wants to change the subject every time you bring up something of spiritual importance. We've known people like that, haven't we? A lot of us have been people like that. Some of us, as we look back at our past, realize that there was 
a lot of years in the past when time after time after time someone would come to us and try to tell us about Jesus and we didn't want to hear it. They invite us to church and we were like, stop inviting me to church. I'm not going already. But they kept asking. We kept putting them off. Maybe we slammed some doors. Maybe we dropped some F-bombs. We did all sorts of things. We didn't want to hear it. But eventually, we gave our life to Jesus Christ. Amen? And so sometimes, just like this woman at the well, we try to deflect the conversation. We try to change the conversation. We get angry. We get snarky. We get upset. We get a chip on our shoulder, whatever. But we don't want to hear it. This woman was dealing with this. But it's pretty amazing what happens in the latter part of this passage. The Apostle John doesn't give us the details, but something remarkable happens to this woman at the well's heart between verses 25 and 28. Because by the time we get to verse 28, she's dropping everything she's doing, including her water jar. And she's hurrying back into town to tell everyone who will listen about this man who told me everything I ever did. And then she asks the question, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? While the woman is on her mission to tell all her neighbors about Jesus, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach his disciples about the most important kind of food, spiritual food, specifically gospel food, the food that brings salvation and eternal life. Jesus is no less tired or hungry or thirsty than he had been an hour ago. But he's not thinking about being physically or tired or physically hungry or physically thirsty because he now had this spiritual food, the joy that came in sharing the good news of salvation and extending grace to this woman who desperately needed it. That's what doing good ministry and saving lost souls can do. It can fill you up, right? Some of you experience this, man. You're starting to get a little hungry. You're ready to eat something, but bam, God drops a ministry opportunity right in front of you. And you begin praying with that person or ministering to that person. And sometimes two, three, even four hours pass and you forgot all about being hungry. You forgot all about being thirsty. You forgot about the fact that you only slept two hours last night. Because that spiritual food enriches you in a way that physical food can't. Now, Jesus eventually ate. He eventually had that drink of water. But it wasn't the priority in the moment. Once he had done the ministry God the Father had called him to do, then it was time to eat and drink a little bit later. It's amazing how much we can put eating and sleeping on hold when we take our eyes off our physical cravings and focus instead on Christ and the needs of those around us. If you eat every single day at the exact mealtime that you had in mind to eat, you might not be doing enough ministry. There should be some times when you don't eat at mealtime because you're allowing the Holy Spirit to completely mess up your meal plan. Amen? It's a beautiful thing when your meal gets cold, when you're allowing it to get cold for Jesus. I'm sure that Jesus did eat and drink later, but all in good time. Verses 39 through 42 provide a wonderful bow on top of the account of Jesus' life-changing visit to Samaria. Many people in and around Sychar heard the woman's testimony about Jesus. So over the next two days, they went to hear Jesus speak, and they went to listen to him teach. And many, it says, placed their trust and their faith in Christ. And we read in verse 42, they came to believe that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. 
Say that with me. They came to believe that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. I'd like to spend a few minutes addressing one of the very important subjects that Jesus addresses in his conversation with this woman at the well. and It's the subject of worship. I think we can draw from Jesus' teaching in verses 21 through 24 two differences between real worship, true worship, and false worship. So let's look at difference number one. First difference between false worship and true worship. False worship is a selective worship, but true worship transcends time, space, and ritual. Go ahead and write that down on your notes. False worship is a selective worship, but true worship transcends time, space, and ritual. In verse 20, the woman at the well correctly points out that the Jews and Samaritans held vastly different views on where they should do worship. Vastly different views on where God should be worshipped. The Jews claimed that God had to be worshipped there at the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans, they didn't believe that. The Samaritans believed God had to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which to the Samaritans was a very holy mountain there in Samaritan territory where they had many years earlier uh, built themselves an alternate temple. And so the Jews said, Jerusalem. And the Samaritans said, no, Mount Gerizim. No, Jerusalem. No, Mount Gerizim. No, Jerusalem. Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem. You know, back and forth. And so they fought over where to worship God. But notice what Jesus says in verse 21. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus is pointing out the truth that worship, true worship, can't be confined to a specific place. Why is that? Because God can't be confined to a specific place. How small of a God do we serve to think that God can only be found in a 30 by 30 foot room in the temple in Jerusalem on the Holy Temple Mount? Yeah, God is squeezed into a 30 foot by 30 foot room called the Holy of Holies. How stupid of us to think God can only be there. The, the Word of God makes it clear that God not only fills the earth, God fills the heavens and the earth. And you know there are literally billions of solar systems in our universe. We haven't even discovered all of them yet. God fills all of it and then some. A room can't contain God. Mount Gerizim can't contain God. Our God is not that small. If you're keeping track of the walls that Jesus broke down during his conversation with the woman at the well, you could mark this down as wall number four. So we looked at the others earlier, the wall between Jews and Samaritans, the wall between men and women, the walls between the so-called worthy and the unworthy. Here's a fourth wall. Jesus broke down the wall between the sacred and the secular. The sacred and the secular. In Jesus' day, and even in our day, most people have had this notion that the church building is sacred and everything outside the church building is secular. Because we believe that the place of worship is holy, which literally means set apart, if the church is holy and set apart, then it just stands to reason that everything it's set apart from is secular. And so the church building is sacred, but the sidewalk out in front of the church building is secular. The church building is sacred, but your kid's school is secular. The church building is sacred, but the place you work is secular. The church building is sacred, 
but Walmart is secular. Well, that one may be true. Anyway, the only other place besides the church that some Christians would say might be sacred is your own home. And that depends on which relatives are over to visit. You know, when Uncle Billy's over there dropping F-bombs in your family room, it's not so sacred that day. If you decide to watch an R-rated movie, maybe it's not too sacred that day. But, you know, some days it can be sacred. But for the most part, many Christians, both in Jesus' day and even today, have had this notion that the church building is sacred, everything else is secular. But what does the New Testament actually teach about the temple of the Holy Spirit? The temple of the Holy Spirit isn't a building, is it? The New Testament teaches that the temple of the Holy Spirit is you. If you're a born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we're taught in the Word of God that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you've got a Christian sitting next to you, turn to him and say, Congratulations, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead. So we ask the question, what place is sacred? You ready for the cool answer to that question? What place is sacred? Wherever you are. Amen? This church room is sacred this morning. But it's not because this is some sort of holy church. This building, this room is sacred because you're in it today. When you step out on the sidewalk after church service, that sidewalk's going to be sacred because you've brought the Holy Spirit to that sidewalk. When you step into your car... Well, I don't know if you can step into it when you sit down in your car. That car is going to be sacred. So be thinking of that when you're going 87 miles an hour down the I-15. That's a little fast for the Holy Spirit to be driving down the freeway. When you step into your home, if you're there, your home is sacred. When you step into a school, those of you who are students, your school is sacred. When you step into your workplace, your workplace is sacred. You don't just come here to do the work of God wherever you go. God is with you because the Holy Spirit lives within you. And so that is one of these wonderful lessons that I think we can draw from what Jesus is saying. God isn't just worshipped in one specific place. God can be worshipped anywhere and everywhere because the Holy Spirit was within us. And when we worship God, spirit touches spirit. Amen? The spirit within us, our spirit, touches the spirit of, of the Holy Spirit. And as those two spirits touch, beautiful worship can take place. Now, there's one more thing that I feel compelled to point out about false worship being selective worship. The Samaritans only believed and followed five books of the Old Testament. I didn't realize this until a couple weeks ago. The Samaritans only followed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they threw out the other 34 books of the Old Testament. Everything from Joshua to Malachi they chucked, and they only followed the first five books. And so what do we call a stripped-down version of the Word of God. I'm not sure what we call it, but it's no longer the Word of God, right? You can't do a Thomas Jefferson, go in and line-item veto parts of the New Testament you don't like. Well, I don't believe in miracles, so Jefferson crossed out the miracles and you know the famous Jeffersonian Bible. You end up with a smidgen of what the New Testament is supposed to look like. And so when it comes down to it, the Samaritans had this piecemeal approach to the Old Testament, to the Holy Scriptures, and so a stripped-down version of the Word of God is no longer the Word of God. Think about what they were missing. They were missing the book of Joshua, where we're learning that God brought the people of Israel into the Promised Land, where they lived themselves. They didn't have the book of Joshua. They'd thrown it out. 
They didn't have the books of history, the books of Chronicles, the books of Kings. So they didn't know how God had punished the people of Israel because of their sin. They didn't know the history of how Samaria had become Samaria because northern Israel had turned their backs on the Lord and worshipped idols instead of Yahweh. They didn't have the glorious book of Psalms and the wise book of Proverbs. They didn't have Ecclesiastes. They didn't have the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Jonah. They'd thrown it all out. So they had this stripped-down version of God and this stripped-down version of the Word of God. And it didn't amount to much, did it? The Samaritans' worship was a false worship in large part because it was a selective worship. When it comes to the Word of God, don't ever forget this, it's all or nothing. You accept all of God's Word or you put it on the shelf and ignore it. No piecemeal approach to the word of God. You accept it all and you follow it in faith. Difference number two. We find this, I think, revealed in verse 22. False worship is an ignorant worship, but true worship involves a personal knowledge of God and his word. In verse 22, Jesus says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Because the Samaritans tossed out most of the Old Testament, they were largely ignorant of who God is, what He has done among His people in generations past, and they were ignorant of what He was going to do in the years to come because they'd thrown out the prophecies. That's, that's pretty sad, isn't it? They missed out on all that. But there is good news. God did give us several wonderful gifts to help us not be spiritually ignorant. The Samaritans were flying blind because they threw out most of the Bible. But we don't have to fly blind. We don't have to be ignorant. So I want to share with you quickly these three wonderful gifts God has given us to keep us from being spiritually ignorant. How many of you today say, you know what? I came to church today and I really, really want to be spiritually ignorant. Anyone? One hand almost went up. (laughs) Maria brought it down real fast. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. Number one, first gift God has given us. Glorious gift. He gave us his word. Amen. This was given to us by God to keep us from being spiritually ignorant. Repeat after me. The Bible was given to me by God so that I will not continue to be spiritually ignorant. Isn't that a wonderful gift? But we can't learn God's word by osmosis. We have to read his word. Ideally, every day. We have to listen to his word because faith comes by hearing. And we have to hide his word in our hearts. If we don't, we're going to stay spiritually ignorant. Sometimes we wonder, how come that Christian brother or sister has been going to church for 50 years and they don't know diddly about the Bible? It's not rocket science to answer that question, is it? They're not reading God's word. They're not listening to God's word. And they're not hiding God's word on their hearts. You don't have to be a pastor to know the Word of God well. You just got to read it. You got to listen to it. You got to hide it on your heart. The second gift God gave us to help us not be spiritually ignorant is our brains. Yeah? Yeah? So one of my concerns about the church in America today, so many churches found worship services on emotional responses. We see it especially in the area of musical worship. Let's try to drum up this emotional frenzy in the congregation. And much 
of the decisions we see, many of the decisions we see made by Christians today are largely emotional decisions. And it's okay to have emotions when you're baptized. We had three baptisms last week. That was awesome. And we're going to be a little emotional when we witness a baptism or are baptized ourselves. Amen? We're going to be a bit emotional when we're worshiping God and it hits us how awesome He is and how much grace and mercy He's given us that I don't deserve and you don't deserve. And Where there's going to be emotions in worship, don't get me wrong, but if our worship and our study of God's Word and our response to God's Word is all based on emotions, that's like trying to build a skyscraper on top of icing. Emotions are icing on the cake. They never make the cake. And so when it comes down to it, our brains need to be engaged when we study God's word. Amen. Amen. Our brains need to be engaged when we sing songs of praise and worship to God. We try to screen our songs before you ever hear them on a Sunday morning. And there have been some times I've had conversations or texting with uh, some of our praise team and worship team members and said, I'm not comfortable with us singing that song on Sunday. I don't think the lyrics are biblical. And so we'll scrap the song. It doesn't matter how popular it is on air one. If the lyrics, I believe, aren't biblical, we don't sing it. Some of you may come up to me or some of you have in the past and said, you know what? We sang such and such in church today. Sometimes someone will come up and say, you said such and such in your sermon today, Pastor. I don't think that's in line with the Word of God. Awesome. Keep doing that. If there is something that we're singing or something that I am preaching that's not in line with the Word of God, don't be ashamed. Don't be too shy. Don't be bashful. Well, Dane went to seminary. Who cares if I went to seminary? If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, bring that to our attention because we have to make sure our brains are always engaged. Amen? Sometimes something slips by me. Sometimes something slips by us. So we make sure our brains are engaged in worship. It's a wonderful gift God has given us as... He wants us to become spiritually informed and not spiritually ignorant. Finally, the third gift God gave us to help us not be spiritually ignorant is His Holy Spirit. Amen? The gift of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our most faithful teacher and personal tutor who opens our minds and our hearts to the truth of God's Word. You cannot worship God in spirit and in truth unless the Holy Spirit is living inside you. True worship involves your spirit As I said, connecting with God's Spirit. And God's Spirit unlocks the truths of God to you. So false worship is selective and ignorant. True worship transcends time and space and ritual. And true worship involves a personal knowledge of God and His Word. I think it is so awesome as you look at the end of this account of the woman at the well. She runs into town and she says, remember, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. She, in essence, is saying, come see a man. I know a man who told me everything I ever did. She goes from simply having a little bit of intellectual knowledge of God to, in the matter of a few minutes, knowing God personally. Because God in human flesh had come to that well and had a one-on-one conversation with her. Don't you think that God has called you and me to do the same thing? Come see a man. I know a man who changed my life. Come see a man. I know a man who can very well transform your life as well. Sometimes it's not about going through an entire gospel presentation with somebody. Sometimes it's simply about saying, 
Jesus Christ changed my life. And can I just tell you what he did for me? Can I just tell you the difference he's made in my life? You know, I'm not very good with my words sometimes, but you want to just come to church with me on Sunday? And want to just come to church with me and we'll figure this thing out together? You don't always have to have the right words, the perfect words. Come and see. Come and see a man. I know a man. The Son of God, God in human flesh, that took the time to meet with me at a well when I didn't deserve it. Mayor LaGuardia. Mayor LaGuardia changed that little old lady's life when he showed her grace in that courtroom. And I would have loved to have had the opportunity to see the ripple effects of that grace on her life as she shared that story of grace with those around her and what the mayor had done for her. And I would have loved to have been there in that town of Sychar as that woman was running through the streets saying, come and see, come and see, come and see. I would have loved to have seen the ripple effects of her testimony as she shared the grace of Jesus, the grace that he had shared, shared to her. That would have been awesome. In heaven, I think we'll get to see all of the lives that were impacted by Jesus' grace on that one woman. And in heaven, you will get to see all the lives that were impacted as you were bold enough to share Jesus' grace with those around you that needed to hear of that grace. Let's do what Jesus encouraged the woman at the well to do. Let's go and tell people. Let's invite people. Let's bring them back to Jesus and see what an amazing difference he can make in their lives. I would bet from that point forward, she worshiped God in spirit and in truth. She worshiped, I believe, Jesus personally because now she knew him personally. And I believe she no longer threw out those other books of the Bible, but she had the whole counsel of the Word of God. So she learned it and grew in her faith. May we do the same. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace shown on this wonderful woman who wasn't so wonderful when you found her, but by your grace was wonderful by the time you were through with her. Thank you, Jesus, for putting your hunger and your thirst and your tiredness aside for a woman who desperately needed an encounter with God. Thank you for transforming us. Help us to dive into your word daily and not be spiritually ignorant because we want to worship you in truth and help us to get to know you, Lord Jesus, better and better as each week passes because we don't want to just worship you in truth. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to know you and love you personally. I pray if there's anyone here who's never made a decision to accept Christ as Savior, that they would make that decision today. Coming to you and saying, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner in need of your grace. Please forgive me. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Wash me clean. Come into my life. And I promise to live for you with you in the driver's seat of my life until you call me home to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made a decision to accept Christ,